service. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock a roll This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Amazon Music and Double Elvis. Yes, the bombs are falling. Poor people running everywhere to wait. He's got the whole world on the wonder. Lord, what's the matter with the cruel world today? The stories about Jane Fonda are insane. She was so beloved that a Gallup poll named her the fourth most admired woman in the world. And she was so hated that her face was used for target practice in urinals at military bases across the country. She was accused by some of committing a treasonous act that led directly to the deaths of American POWs. And she was personally set up by President Richard Nixon on a bogus drug smuggling charge. And though her life as a political activist often overshadowed her life as an actress. Jane Fonda made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Buster Brown performing War Song in 1943. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. And why would I play you that specific slice of sleeps with the fish's cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on July 12, 1972. And that was the day Jane Fonda landed in Hanoi to kick off a 10-day tour of North Vietnam, a trip that would forever cement her as either a patriot or a traitor in the eyes of a divided country. On this episode, target practice, treasonous acts, drug smuggling, 
Sleeps with the Fish's Cheese, and Jane Fonda. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 8, Hollywoodland. The airplane landed hard on the runway. It bounced twice before a rush of wind lifted it back off the ground. The pilot struggled to aim the nose down as another gust pushed the aircraft sharply to the left. The pilot centered the controls and then brought the Boeing 747 to a stop. Not a graceful landing, but not bad for a blustery November night. They found headwinds all the way from Vancouver, and finally they were in Cleveland. It was just past midnight. Jane Fonda rubbed her eyes. She couldn't wait to get through customs and hit the hotel bed for a few hours of sleep. The last six weeks had been grueling. Speeches, protests, fundraisers, and a trip to Canada tacked on at the last minute. She knew she should have said no, but it was hard to turn down the veterans who were brave enough to speak out against the war in Vietnam. Listening to their stories night after night brought her to tears. It hardened her budding activism and their heart-wrenching tales about the failures of military leadership, the lies of the Nixon administration, and the brutality of war had inspired her to join this campaign in the first place. But she was beginning to wonder if they were asking too much of her. The travel was non-stop. She was sleeping on floors and couches, living out of a single overnight bag. And lately, she had a shadow following her everywhere. The FBI. The stress was pushing her to the breaking point. She had to cut back soon. For now, she kept moving and traveled light. Only a few t-shirts and pairs of jeans, a bulging black address book, and a few dozen vials of pills. Dexedrine, Valium, and vitamin supplements. All doctor-prescribed and perfectly legal. Jane was thankful for the cocktail of drugs that kept her functioning despite her hectic schedule as not only one of the most in-demand actresses in the world, but one of the most in-demand activists. The dexedrine took the edge off her hunger and boosted her energy. And the Valium helped her come down at night. And the vitamins, and they were magic. All the nutrients a body needed with none of the calories. Or so the thinking went in 1970. In truth, Jane's body was breaking down. Her bones were brittle. Her hair was falling out. She was hungry and irritable all the time. On a five foot seven frame, she weighed less than 110 pounds. But directors said she looked great on camera. After playing the lead in the racy sci-fi romp Barbarella, magazines named her the sexiest woman alive. Jane didn't buy it. No matter how thin she was, she still hated her body. Her father, the actor Henry Fonda, constantly criticized her growing up. He teased her for her chubby cheeks, and when she sprouted curves as a teenager, he insisted she cover up with long dresses. Even now, 20 years later, those comments still rang in her head every time she looked in the mirror. Jane's mother died when Jane was 12. Suicide. It left Jane desperate for her father's approval. And despite his charming demeanor on set, 
At home, Henry Fonda was cold and distant. As a teenager, Jane thought she could make herself thin enough to win his love, but now, at 32, that love hadn't arrived and bulimia had become every bit as addictive as any pill. So, as the swinging 60s commenced, Jane Fonda filled the hungry void inside her with drugs and debauchery. She married a French director and dabbled with grass, LSD, hash, and cocaine. Her husband wanted to experiment sexually as well, and Jane was determined to please him. She solicited friends, fellow starlets, even call girls from the Paris brothel Madame Claude's to join them in bed. Anything to please the man in her life. By 1969, the decadence and glamour was starting to lose its appeal. And then everything turned sour when Jane's friend, Sharon Tate, was brutally murdered in her home. Charles Manson brought true horror to Hollywood and sent many stars scrambling for a sense of real safety. Jane found herself searching for purpose. She thought she'd found it two years earlier. The march on the Pentagon was an eye-opening moment. Protesters sticking flowers in gun barrels of young soldiers, and federal marshals beating housewives and grandmothers who dared oppose the war. Reading and watching the news was no longer enough. At that moment, Jane Fonda was ready to throw herself into the movement. Her first big success was organizing the anti-war comedy show FTA, AKA Free the Army, or Fuck the Army to those in the know. She recruited fellow actors, including Donald Sutherland and musicians Nina Simone and Country Joe McDonald for a freewheeling sketch comedy show designed as a left-leaning response to Bob Hope's USO tour. The show's hilariously skewered military brass and President Nixon and other leaders playing for thousands at GI coffeehouses across the country. The show also attracted the attention of powerful men, men like Nixon and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. That blonde bimbo from Barbarella dared lecture them about military policy? Even worse, she ended each show by recruiting actual GIs to speak out against the war. Too much of that talk could bring down the whole system. Nixon would be damned if he was gonna let that happen on his watch. He was gonna send Jane Fonda a message. And her trip to Canada provided the perfect opportunity. Jane Fonda walked off the plane in Cleveland and hauled her overnight bag to the customs window. She could already feel the comfort of that hotel bed, almost there now, as she placed the bag down and reached for her passport. Suddenly, two men in black suits came out of nowhere. They grabbed her and whisked her into a small room. She freaked out. What's going on? Where were they taking her? Neither man responded to her questions, so she kept repeating them over and over. They couldn't just give her the silent treatment. Someone had to say something now. Finally, one of the men slammed his fist down on the table in front of her. You're not in Hollywood, little miss. You're in my control, and I take my orders directly from Washington. Got it? Jane didn't know how to respond. She knew the FBI was following her, but she didn't think they would go this far. She never thought the President of the United States would personally request that she'd be taken into custody. The agent grabbed her bag and dumped it out onto the table. He took her address book, and the one full of the names and numbers of political radicals. He picked up the vials of pills. Well, what do we have here? Each had a letter written on top of the cap. B. L. D. Benzos? LSD? Some new drug only Hollywood types knew about? Jane broke the tension with the simple truth. They were vitamins. One for breakfast, one for lunch, and one for dinner. 
BLD. Didn't matter what she said, though. Jane Fonda was booked for suspicion of drug smuggling. Instead of spending the night in a hotel, she spent it in a Cleveland jail cell. The press was waiting when she arrived. Dozens of reporters swarmed the car. The agents pulled her out of the back seat, her hands cuffed behind her back. She was exhausted, strung out, and she was pissed. There was no way she was going peacefully. She slipped her thin wrists through the cuffs and turned back to face the reporters. She raised her fist high in a power to the people salute before the agents dragged her inside. The charges were quietly dropped a few weeks later, but the damage to Jane Fonda's reputation had already been done. The warning from Nixon was crystal clear. Keep going down this path and we can do worse. Much worse. The line of people snaked through the bookstore, past fiction in the children's section, and a large collection of used World War II histories out the front door and around the block down the street. He'd been waiting for nearly an hour. Couldn't believe the size of the line. It must be a thousand people strong. He felt sick to his stomach. Look at all these women lined up for a photo or an autograph with an airhead actress, like she was some kind of hero. The chewing tobacco nestled under his lip wasn't helping matters either. And God, it reeked. He never chewed tobacco. And the taste from the lump in his cheek right now made him want to gag every few minutes. Still, if he could manage to keep it down for a bit longer, it would be worth the taste. And then, he'd never have to touch the stuff again in his life. He pulled the black Vietnam vet hat down over his face. He felt like everyone in the store was staring at him. He debated wearing the hat at all. Was it too much of a giveaway? In the end, he wanted to make sure it was clear to everyone why he was doing this, so he kept on. Turned out he didn't need to worry. There were a handful of other guys here tonight wearing the exact same hat. The thing that puzzled him, though, was that some of them seemed happy to meet Jane Fonda. Maybe in Los Angeles, but here in Kansas City? Everyone he served with knew that Jane Fonda was a fucking traitor. She'd been spitting in the face of veterans for almost 40 years. Tonight, she was gonna get a taste of her own medicine. In 2005, after nearly 15 years away from the spotlight, Jane Fonda was back. Nixon's threat failed to stop her activism in the 1970s. In fact, Jane outlasted Nixon when the Watergate scandal forced him to resign in 1974. Meanwhile, Jane's career roared to new heights. She was nominated for an Oscar for her performance in The China Syndrome and took home Best Actress for her role in Coming Home. In her 40s, she kicked bulimia and turned to high-intensity aerobics for a new endorphin rush. She loved the routines and eventually started teaching classes, on set during film shoots and at her gym in Beverly Hills. A best-selling book followed, but she had no idea that Jane Fonda's workout would make her an icon. When the videotape came out in 1982, there was no video sales market. VHS was mostly rentals. People simply weren't gonna pay $59.99 for a videotape just to watch it over and over again. But Jane Fonda changed all that. 
The Jane Fonda workout sold more than 17 million copies, kicked off the home video revolution, and set the standard for every celebrity workout video on the market today. Although she still raised boatloads of cash for progressive causes through her film production company, by the mid-80s, Jane Fonda was less visible in her activism. The Vietnam War was no longer the first thing reporters mentioned when they talked with her. And when they did, they spoke admiringly of her principles. A Gallup poll in 1984 named her the fourth most admired woman in the world. And then, things changed abruptly. As memories of the Vietnam War faded, some politicians began to revise history. Their take was that the war effort was doomed not by poor military command, bad strategy, and unrealistic goals, but by hippies and college bums and celebrity protesters. Ronald Reagan took pot shots at Jane Fonda in his campaign speeches. And by 1987, protests were breaking out in towns where she was filming her movies. The anger, which had been dormant for more than a decade, shocked her. She quietly announced her retirement from acting the following year and retreated from public life. Now, however, she was back with a new movie and a new book about her life. Sure, she dug into her activism in her memoir. She admitted a few regrets, but largely stood by her work. Most of it was 40 years in the past, and surely people were ready to move on. The man in the Vietnam vet hat put his hand in his pocket and unfolded the printout to read once more. The letter described Jane's controversial visit to Hanoi back in 1972. It ridiculed Jane for her lame-brained Hollywood activism and for being naive. It described how she let herself be brainwashed by the North Vietnamese and how she had actually gone so far as to betray American prisoners of war. His blood boiled every time he read that part. He imagined Jane Fonda visiting the infamous Hanoi Hilton prison camp. He had buddies who had lived in that squalid prison for years. He knew from the printout that men were forced to meet with her. Some refused and they were beaten. Those who did meet with her were forced to apologize for bombing babies. Forced to smile and tell the world they were being treated humanely by their captors. In their desperation, they tried to pass along notes to her, notes to prove to their families they were still alive. Jane collected them in her hand as the cameras rolled. And the prisoners breathed sighs of relief, but as soon as the cameras stopped, she handed the notes over to their North Korean captors. Men could die for that shit. Others had been beaten nearly to death, but lived to pass on this tale. Their names and ranks were listed on this paper, this paper that he held in his hand. His buddies who had been captured in Vietnam often told stories like these over beers in the VFW hall. In between rounds, they used Jane's face for target practice in the urinals. This paper, this paper had facts and dates. It couldn't be just a rumor. It had to be real. He folded the letter up and put it back in his pocket. And after waiting nearly 90 minutes, he was almost to the front of the line. He spit into the styrofoam cup he was holding and pushed the lump of tobacco around in his cheek. Couldn't wait to get rid of it. A pair of middle-aged housewives stepped up in line. And finally, he was next. He watched as they handed over a copy of Jane's new memoir for her to sign. The workout changed my life, one of them said to her. You're such an inspiration. God, he couldn't believe this was his country. Jane Fonda, an inspiration? She shook her ass and her tits on screen. She did a little workout video. She stabbed her country in the back. 
That's what counted for inspiration these days. You're here to pay a debt, a debt of honor, he told himself. Stay focused on the mission. The women in front of him picked up their books and took a step towards the exit. He spit into the cup one last time, steadied himself, and then bolted forward. Fuck you, Hanoi Jane, he screamed and threw the cup of spit into her face. A pair of bookstore employees hit the deck, but Jane Fonda didn't move at all. She turned her head and locked eyes with him, a placid expression on her face. He got closer now, his eyes wide with rage. He took aim and spit a stream of tobacco juice at her face. Mission accomplished. A security guard leveled the man with a flying tackle from behind. The Vietnam vet had flew through the air and a stack of books crashed to the floor. Jane looked out at the dumbfounded crowd, nearly a thousand people frozen in place, but not her. She had survived FBI surveillance and battles with Richard Nixon. It would take more than a little bodily fluid to scare her. She raised her chin and calmly reached for a handkerchief in her purse. She dabbed her face lightly and then flashed her dazzling movie star smile. Next in line, please, she called out, and the crowd roared with laughter. Still, she couldn't help but wonder, would the name Hanoi Jane follow her forever? We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The air raid sirens ripping through downtown Hanoi shattered the midday calm. A moment ago, the streets were buzzing with bikes and pedestrians. Now, people ran wildly in every direction. In the chaos, Jane Fonda felt the crowd surge between her and her translator, pushing them in opposite directions. Now, Jane stood in the middle of the street, frozen with fear as people went streaming past. She frantically scanned the crowd for a familiar face. Where was her translator? And the rumble of incoming jets mixed with the sirens and her heart pounded. She didn't know what to do. Then she felt a small hand brushing her elbow. She looked down and saw a young girl, no more than 12, pulling on her arm. The girl led her off the street and down an alleyway. Jane was relieved to see her translator sprinting after them. In the alley, the girl lifted up a pile of reeds and straw to reveal a small bomb shelter dug into the ground. The girl pushed Jane into the hole wedged herself in beside Jane's translator and slid the cover over the hole. The three sat in the darkness, trying to catch their breath. Jane could feel the girl's tiny heart beating against her skin. The girl's eyelashes fluttered against Jane's cheek, her breath warm. They heard the planes pass overhead, and Jane began to cry. She knew her country was responsible for the bombs that were beginning to fall. The girl spoke calmly in Vietnamese. The translator spoke. Don't cry for us. We know why we are fighting. Cry for your soldiers. They don't know why they are here, and they don't know why they are fighting us. Jane Fonda wiped away her tears and turned the girl's words over and over in her head while American jets flew above. The planes passed without incident. The three women climbed out of the hole in the ground and Jane hugged the young girl. She had already seen so much death and destruction on this trip. She was glad for a reprieve today. It was July 17, 1972, five days after Jane Fonda arrived in Hanoi. Like hundreds of other American activists who visited North Vietnam, she met with POWs and delivered letters from their families back home. She observed the destruction caused by American weapons and met women and children who had been mutilated by American bombs. Like Pete Seeger and Joan Baez, 
She spoke out against American military policy on Radio Hanoi. Back in the States, Richard Nixon was running for re-election on his promise to finally end the war. In reality, while drawing down the number of American troops, he was rapidly ramping up bombings, including civilian targets in North Vietnam. Officially, the administration denied it, but many veterans told Jane of homes and hospitals being targeted. Even the vital river Delta, where much of the country's rice crop was grown. If the levees were destroyed, humanitarians predicted that as many as a million innocent civilians, many of them poor farmers, would starve to death. During her visit, Jane Fonda saw proof of Richard Nixon's lies. She visited the bombed and burned out river levees. She saw smoldering craters as big as a football field wide. She brought a film crew to document the wreckage. This wasn't a combat mission, it was a war crime. Unlike most visitors to North Vietnam, Jane traveled alone. She was shadowed by her translator and a pair of handlers from the North Vietnamese government. The first few days were relaxed, but as the trip wore on, there were hints at an upcoming visit to an air defense installation. Jane tried to brush them aside. She tried to communicate that she didn't want to go. She busied herself elsewhere, until finally it was her last day in Hanoi. On the morning of that final day, Jane's translator and the North Vietnamese handlers burst through her hotel door unannounced. They towered over her, insisting on visiting the air defense system. Once again, she tried to refuse, but the implication became clear. It would be much easier to simply cooperate. She was tired, hungry, and she played for time. She delayed, but she was at their mercy. She had no choice but to agree to make the visit, get through it quickly and then get back home. At the air defense base, Jane gave her standard speech against the policies of the Nixon administration to the assembled group. After she was led outside to view the weapons, she looked at her translator and asked if it was safe. Her translator popped a helmet on her head and ushered her out to the huge guns. No pictures, Jane pleaded as she stepped forward. She forced an awkward smile onto her face and tried to get through the tour as quickly as possible. She was there for less than 15 minutes before returning to the hotel. The next day, Jane arrived by plane in Paris. She showed a rough cut of her Vietnam footage to journalists and the assembled reporters were shocked into silence as they viewed the bombed out schools and hospitals and destroyed river levees. She showed the footage again in New York before it was mysteriously stolen and never to be seen again. Hold up. Some of you listening right now are probably thinking, what about the whole Jane Fonda betraying the troops story? What about the Hanoi Hilton? When do we get to that? Well, unfortunately, you're not going to find that story here. Why? Because it never happened. Total bullshit. The fact is, during her visit to Hanoi, Jane Fonda never set foot in that prison camp. She did meet with a group of seven POWs, but their identities weren't secret. In fact, the North Vietnamese were trumpeting their names to anyone who would listen so no one would think they were bluffing. And despite their names being attached to rumors over the years, the men who met with Jane Fonda all deny they were tortured or were forced to meet with her. Some of these men became anti-war activists. Some of these men say they are not fans of Jane Fonda. But all of them have said this story about Jane Fonda betraying American troops is a complete fabrication. While a few politicians or columnists were incensed by Jane's visit to North Vietnam, America, for the most part, in 1972 didn't notice it at all. It got a brief mention on page 9 of the New York Times in the entertainment section, and that's pretty much it. It wasn't exactly a groundbreaking story in 1972 that someone opposed the war. 
By then, everyone opposed the war. So if you want to find the story of Jane Fonda betraying the troops, you have to fast forward a bit, all the way to 1987. By then, the reality of Vietnam was starting to fade, and politicians like Ronald Reagan played to their base, laying the blame for America's defeat, not on bad policy or leadership, but on spoiled college kids and liberal Hollywood activists. Into this atmosphere, a small movie called The Hanoi Hilton was released, a fairly paint-by-numbers war film about Vietnam that got panned by critics and did diddly at the box office, but thanks to newly emerging home video sales, thanks in no small part to Jane Fonda and her VHS workout, The Hanoi Hilton, that movie it became a cult classic at VFW halls and military bases around the country. In the film, there's an obvious Jane Fonda stand-in that appears halfway through. She fawns over the North Vietnamese prison leaders, and she accuses the American troops of committing war crimes and demands they apologize. Finally, she betrays them by passing on their complaints about the food to the prison leaders. Several men are beaten. The woman then returns to her life in Hollywood without a thought for the damage she's done. Sound familiar? Ever since that movie came out, it has slowly melded with Jane Fonda's real-life activism to the point where it started getting reported as fact. And over the years, Jane Fonda thought if she worked hard enough, raised enough money for veterans, and apologized profusely, that she could eventually get her haters to move on. She had no idea how wrong she was. The holding cell was chaos. Inmates moaned and wailed. Many of them were in need of a fix or food or medical attention. Hands clattered against the bars and voices screamed out at the guards or at fellow prisoners or at no one at all. Jane Fonda walked into the cell with her head held high. Despite the deafening noise, she was calm. Getting arrested today was hardly a surprise. In fact, it was the fourth Friday in a row. Usually she was given a fine and released. Today, her lawyer warned her, things might be different. Her pending charges from the past few weeks were starting to stack up, and it was possible she'd be held overnight. No matter, what's one night? She found a small opening in the bench seat and sat down. Her 82-year-old body felt exhausted. Good thing she ate a good meal before the protest. It was the only thing keeping her going. A few weeks earlier, Jane Fonda moved to DC to kick off what she called Fire Drill Fridays. Inspired by the young climate activist Greta Thunberg, she was recommitting herself to direct street-level activism. Every Friday with a growing crowd of supporters and a handful of famous friends, Jane protested outside the Capitol to raise awareness about climate change. And every week, like clockwork, the police would swarm in and haul everyone off to jail. And every time they did it, the crowd came back the following week bigger than before. Today was no different. After about 20 minutes of chanting, the cops gave their first warning. After the second warning, a gap began to emerge between those who were and those who were not willing to have their day ruined by going to jail. Jane kept at it, 30 supporters standing beside her. The police swarmed into the crowd. Jane knew they were making a beeline for her, and they zip-tied her hands behind her back. If only she was still flexible enough to slip the cuffs and flash that power to the people salute. Hard to believe that in 2019, almost 50 years since she'd been arrested on a bogus drug smuggling charge, Jane Fonda was being arrested again. 
All the time and all that controversy in between, but somehow through it all, she'd never been arrested again until now. Not that some didn't think she should be in jail. There were a few here today, and just a small group as usual. Two or three counter-protesters holding up signs that read, Leave America, Hanoi Jane. Jane still felt pain that she would never be able to win them over. No matter how much money she raised, or how many veterans groups she spoke with, or how many times she apologized. Some people would always see her as the sex symbol from Barbarella. Some people would always see her as the villain from the Hanoi Hilton. And you could just never win some people's love, like her father. Henry Fonda passed away back in 1982. Right before he died, Jane produced his final movie, The Incredible On Golden Pond. She thought the film's father-daughter plotline might help them hash out some of their real-life issues. Once again, she was disappointed. On screen, their chemistry crackled, but once the scene was over, her father was as cold as ever. And when he died, he left her nothing in his will. She learned through time to forgive him. She also learned to love her own body, although that took a bit longer. Hardest of all, she learned that she could live with the fact that some people would never love her. At 82 years old, Jane Fonda felt comfortable in her own skin. She knew who she was, she knew what she had done, and she stood by her work. She stood up and leaned her back against the prison wall, did a few light wall squats. Might as well make the best of the time. She'd be out soon enough, and then she'd be back next Friday. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.